0: Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. In this episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, Dr. Ben Lahoud and Dr. Cyrus Meta analyse patient lifestyles, occupations and personality types to tailor their IOL selection. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome to another Peer to Peer podcast brought to you by Rainer. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Lahoud from Australia. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Cyrus Mehta from India. Today, we're going to be discussing how patient lifestyles, occupations, and personalities influence IOL selection, particularly for those with specific or complex professions. Welcome, Cyrus. It's great to chat with you. Um, would you start by telling me about your practice and the types of patients that you manage? That would be great.
2: Hi, Ben. It's great to be here and with the Rayna team. I'm basically a cataract glaucoma and refractive surgeon in Mumbai and I've been here since about 23 years since I finished my training. So we do about 300 surgeries a month which isn't very much by Indian standards but our patients are more discerning and uh, a lot of them ask for multifocal lenses. So we have a wide experience of putting in thousands of multifocal lenses over the years. So that's a little bit about me.
1: That's brilliant. And see, that's why I wanted to talk to you, Cyrus, because you've got over 20 years experience with multifocal lenses and thousands of implants. So that's exactly what we want. Uh, I think our listeners want to hear practical experience. So starting with the consultation process, how do you actually assess, you know, you were saying that, you know, your patients are quite discerning. They know what they want. How, How do you assess patient personality in terms of whether they will tolerate trifocal visual side effects. Um, you know, Some patients, I know from my experience, might seem easygoing, but post-op you learn they're really not. So, you know, how do you go about assessing preoperatively
2: whether you think someone will tolerate different visual side effects? So first, in my practice, the patient goes and sees the optometrist. And the optometrist will ask a few simple questions, you know, and just get to know the person a little better. And that's where... The optometrist comes and tells me that the next person who's coming to see you is very picky. That's basically like a pointer for me to watch out for these people. The second thing is when the patient walks into the room and uh, I always ask them that how important is it to you to be spectacle free versus how important is it to you to have perfect vision for distance and perfect vision at night. And some people will come back with a statement like I love driving or I don't want any glare at night because today people, they go to Google or any other search engine and they're pretty much well versed with the side effects of a trifocal lens or a bifocal lens today. And they all read on the net that they're going to have glare and halos. But some people are just motivated to be spectacle free. They said, I don't drive. I don't care as long as I can see TV and I just don't want to wear glasses anymore. And… We we have a look at, you know, how the patient is speaking. If the spouse keeps interrupting. uh, If they look like, you know, they are in a difficult situation personally or professionally. These are the people I'd rather avoid putting a trifocal lens in or over-promising the result. It's always better to under-promise or say things like, you might still need a pair of spectacle lenses Uh, a small pair of reading glasses to read now and then. And I always tell them that, you know, if you read all the studies, you see that 85% of the people are spectacle-free. But what about that other 15%? You may be one of those 15%. So remember that even though we plan to be spectacle-free, you might still require a small pair of reading glasses in order to achieve that. And you should be okay with that. And most of the time, once you tell people this, after the surgery, if they have a plus one or plus two, they are okay with it. So main, the main thing here is to inform people before surgery what to expect after surgery. So I have a very good idea after 20 years of seeing people, you can make out that, you know, this person's going to be difficult. Yeah, you've obviously got a lot of
1: experience, but
2: a, a big part of what you're
1: saying really is spending time with the patient and getting to know them. You know, there's no real substitute for actually knowing your patients well and finding out what they need. I, I talk a lot with my patients about a trade-off. You know, like you were saying, you, you can't have it all. You can have excellent quality of vision or you can have very good depth of focus, but it's, it's difficult to have both completely. And with the trifocals, you know, I put thousands of them in and I've, I always say to my patients, I've taken a handful of them out again. It doesn't mean all of
2: those patients that kept them were perfectly happy, but it's what you can tolerate. Yeah. So it's very important to know what the person wants and what kind of person you're dealing with. I agree. Nasaris, um, when I'm
1: deciding between implanting a trifocal, like the Ray-1 trifocal or the, the Ray-1 EMV lens, uh, one question I ask people is, do you do a lot of nighttime driving? And if they do, I, I usually stay away from a trifocal. Do you have any specific questions? Because I know that listeners really like specific advice. And any questions that you ask routinely which you think, Right, this question really helps me decide
2: what would be best for this patient. Yeah, so the first question I would ask someone is, how much do you drive at night? If he says, well, you know, I drive for uh, five or 10 minutes at night, it doesn't make one, I don't really drive much. I don't drive 50 kilometers to work at night. So then I would not uh, be hesitant in implanting a trifocal lens because a trifocal lens does give them better spectacle independence. And I explained to them, that if I put in a trifocal lens, you'll read better. But then, don't expect that you're going to drive 50 or 100 kilometers a night and have no glare. It doesn't work like that. So for example, if I have an elderly lady who's 85 years old, and she has bad joints, and she needs trouble getting out of the chair, I'm pretty sure she's not going to rush onto her motorcycle and you know ride off into the sunset. So these are the ideal cases for trifocal lenses. The youngish person, 55-60, who says, I want perfect distance vision. I only read books on the iPad. I'm a stockbroker. I'm going to look at my screen, which is further than arm's length. These are the people I would, without hesitation, uh, put in an EMV. I wouldn't even offer them a trifocal because I find the results with the EMV with a minus one in the other eye are pretty much perfect. And I put in hundreds of these lenses and I can tell you, that very rare is the person who says, well, you know, I'm not really happy with the blur in the left eye and I want to go back uh, to uh, go back to the situation where I just have reading glasses and I'll be happy with that. It's never happened to me.
1: Cyrus, you spoke earlier about expectation, and I completely agree, you know, under-promise and over-deliver at all times if possible. One of the expectations that I think causes trouble is that people underestimate how much they do in their day-to-day life but intermediate and near distances. How do you get around that? Do you do you take a lot of time explaining to people that when you say reading, you don't just mean reading a book, you mean looking at your watch or your phone? Uh, how do you get around that expectation? Because that's definitely caused trouble for me, where I have hemotropic outcomes, people that should be happy, but they come back very frustrated that they can't read and they realize how much they did it near or intermediate. Is that something you run
2: into? Uh, the situation is that yeah. I always ask them, what kind of device do you read on? And if people are just going to use a laptop, a laptop is a perfect intermediate uh, distance because a laptop's never going to be at 12 inches, always going to be at 16 or 18 inches. Or a stockbroker screen is always going to be further than that. And they are ideal EMV candidates. I would never put a trifocal in them. So I'm putting less and less trifocals and more and more EMVs. That makes sense. Um, Cyrus, in terms of
1: sort of specific hobbies and occupations, a really big one over this side of the world is golf. Uh, We have a lot of retired golfers. They really want really good crisp distance vision, probably like some degree of binocularity. Uh, But afterwards, you know, they'd like to be able to enter the scores into their into their phone. They'd like to be able to go and order a drink at the pro shop afterwards. Um, do you, is golf a big
2: deal in India as well? Not really because because every square inch of the country is occupied. <laughs> so on the size of a golf course, we have a lot of golf course, but on the size of a golf course, I can, uh, I can house 1 million people. <laughs> we do have golfers here, but they're all in their late 60s. Nobody at 30s playing golf here. So there's no Tiger Woods here. So, all these guys are all retired. I wouldn't really discriminate between a trifocal or a EMV for such patients. Uh, because, again, I'll ask them how much you drive at night. And if they don't really drive, put in a trifocal. His distance vision is fine. He's not playing golf at night with on with headlights. <laughs> so, his distance vision will be pretty good with a trifocal. I don't see any problem with distance vision. It's just the glare. A makeup artist is a perfect trifocal candidate. Remember that when you're doing makeup, you don't do it with extended arms. You're doing makeup at 12 inches or 10 inches. So you need a trifocal. I've operated a lot of cosmetologists who are uh, MD dermatologists who do a lot of Botox and fillers. You know that everyone wants Botox and fillers. And everyone who's told you that they haven't done Botox and fillers are lying. They've all done Botox and fillers. So you see... So these people are doing 20 and 30 Botox and 30 fillers a day and all that's done at, at 8 or 10 inches. And if you can't image the fine lines on the person's face, you can't decide where to inject them. And, and these are generally Indian women who are 5 feet 3 or 5 feet 4. So how long are their arms going to be? Remember, I'm not dealing with a Caucasian male from Texas who's 6 foot 4. I'm dealing with people who are mid-fives if they are lucky. So they've got short arms. So their working distance is even less. These are good trifocal candidates, even though they are just 45 or 50 or 55. They are great trifocal candidates. Again, a dentist, I have operated a few dentists and I've put in EMVs. I've not put in trifocals because a dentist, if you notice, the dentist is never six inches away because they use the loops or they use an operating microscope today. So the old days of the dentist sticking his head in your mouth are over. Yeah,
1: I think there's similarity for us. I don't see quite so many uh, cosmetic injectors or makeup artists, but hairdressers, we see a lot of hairdressers. And it's a similar idea where they need to be at arm's length, but also need to be a look in the mirror, also need to be able to uh, do invoicing. And so there's multiple distances. So a trifocal works really well and they're, they're in well lit conditions, they're in really well lit conditions. We see occasionally people, are professional shooters, astronomers, you know, these really
2: precision visual tasks. What do you think about that? So if the person's emetropic, and I've operated plenty of them, if the person's completely emetropic, he has to wear a plus one lens in a shooting frame or in a spectacle in front of one eye and the other eye is blocked with a blinder or something to block the pupil, okay? The effect is that Normally at plus one or 1.25, they will focus perfectly at at 80 centimeters. So an EMV is the perfect lens to put in this person. I would never, ever put a trifocal.
1: It does make me think, Cyrus, do you always take into account patients' uh, heights and arm
2: lengths for all of your aims? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, because I do have patients who are over six feet tall. And when they sit in my chair and I give them an iPad and say, read it and he's holding the iPad at 18 or 20 inches, it doesn't need a trifocal. It doesn't make any sense. But if I have a short old lady, and she's 80 years old, and she can't get out of the chair, and she holds it like this, she's a trifocal lens candidate with good light.
1: And when you are aiming for your uh, monovision, uh, with the EMV lens, for instance, uh, do you do you differ the aim for the the second eye uh, based on that? Do you think about what they enjoy doing? Do you, do you alter that second eye? Or is that something that you always
2: pretty much have a standard aim for most eyes? So if they have no personal preference, they are minus one in the in the other eye. But I do ask them, I said, do you want perfect vision for distance in both eyes? In that case, you still have a small pair of reading glasses and a lot of people are just okay with that.
1: Cyrus, so with, um, with your experience with the EMV lens, i found that when I'm aiming the emotropic eye I've been aiming a little bit plus because I think that maybe the A constant wasn't quite right and I was getting very slightly myopic outcomes um, so, so I've started aiming just a little bit plus and I think my, my outcomes have been very good I've been very happy with them I do implant sulcus lenses to create or to, to fix hyperopia um, I, I presented a, a study at Oscars meeting in Australia Showing that sulcus lenses over the top of trifocals or EDOF lenses still maintain a really excellent depth of focus. They don't alter the optics at all. Do you have a lot of experience with the sulcoflex lens? Is that something you use from time to time?
2: I don't personally have much experience with the sulcoflex lens because we don't really get it very readily in India.
1: Yeah, the sulcoflex trifocal, you know, a sulcus trifocal lens in general, uh, is, is a great option for those patients where you're just not entirely sure. Cyrus, uh, so the, the RayPro website, I'm sure you've, you've used that. That's at Rainer.com yep. slash RayPro. Uh, they've got some, some great resources to help understand patient reported outcomes. You can, uh, they can contact patients up to three years after surgery to assess satisfaction of outcomes, need for subsequent procedures. Uh, you can even do it under your own branding with the help of Rayner. Is that something that you've used? Is that something that you, uh, you sort of utilize in your practice?
2: I'm going to start, but I've not really used it personally yet. So I can't really comment on it. I've been told it's very good from many people like you. So I'm planning to go down that road. Yeah, I think
1: with your huge volume of uh, patients, there would be some amazing data.
2: So, when I, so I started implanting Rayner lenses in 1996. So uh, we were putting in 200 Rayner lenses a month. And even then... Rainer had the best injector system. It was absolutely the best. Now it's all preloaded. It's next level. It's an injector that actually goes in through two millimeters without having to shove your hand in the eye. So yeah, see the eye after all is living tissue. It's not a, a metal ball. So you know, you can push harder. You can get something in through a tinier opening. But I hate that because you lose control. I would rather enlarge the incision which I normally do with the injectors of many other companies, but with rainer I never have to. It goes in straight away with my 2.2. Yeah. And that makes it so much better. Rayner has always had the best material. I've seen thousands of patients with glistenings that I've operated, but I've yeah. never had a rainer hydrophilic lens go opaque in maybe fifty thousand lenses. I've been
1: I've been pretty vocal in my uh in my love of hydrophilic lenses. I think that the the, the worry about opacification has been massively blown out of proportion. I think the, the benefits definitely outweigh the risks. But I agree with you that, you know, as someone that's obsessed about astigmatism management, that I would much rather slightly enlarge an incision than stretch it by, by forcing an injector through a small incision. So it is very nice being able to slide an injector easily through a small incision. Good. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Cyrus, for joining me for this discussion. I think uh, there have some great options from the, the Ray1 trifocal to the Salkaflex we spoke briefly about and the Ray1 EMV for all of these different professions and hobbies that we were talking about. And today you've given some really great advice about how we would assess and how we would fine tune our aims for those particular people. One of the most important things is understanding your patient's goals and what they want to achieve so that you can really give tailor-made care and even though you don't think that you treat that many people i think being able to give a, a boutique procedure for that high volume of patients is really impressive what you're doing so uh you know well done i think that that's actually a huge number of people to be fine-tuning and giving a, a personalized service to the the ray Pro website is a great place to start if you want to learn more about the lenses that we were discussing in more detail also So um, thank you, Cyrus, and uh, thank you again, and uh, we'll talk to you all again soon. Yeah.
2: Thanks, Ben.
0: For more information about this episode's topic and to read the show notes, visit the Peer-to-Peer Hub at reinacom forward slash peer-to-peer. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rainer does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labeling and instructions for use for Rainer products in all cases. Not all Rainer products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.